This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others, and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm so excited today to be joined by Felicia Masonheimer. Felicia, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is really exciting to talk to you. I've been following your work for a while now and have just been getting really excited about the kind of stuff that you're doing. I think it's so important right now, specifically. Um, So give us a little bit of background on who you are, your family, uh, where you guys live, and just the spiel. Absolutely. So I am Felicia Mason. I am married to my husband, Josh. We have three kids, ages five, three, and almost one, and we live in Northern Michigan. So when I say Michigan, people usually think Detroit. We're five hours north of Detroit. So we are about two hours south of Canada. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow. We believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Pretty far north. Wow. Well, that's it. It's a like the most wonderful time in northern Michigan right now, though. It right? is. It is. This is the time that we're always like, this is why we're we live here. And then the other nine months of the year. And then like in December, you're thinking mm-hmm. you're rethinking that. <laughs> yes. January to April, the, the long stretch. So um I am the founder and CEO of Every Woman a Theologian, which is a ministry and a business that operates to equip families and women to know what they believe and why they believe it. And so we create all sorts of resources from Bible studies to print um books to children's books, and then fun things like t-shirts, earrings, things like that too. So the business side provides for the ministry side, which is um, has worked out really well for us um, so that we don't have to rely on donations and things like that to provide resources. So we have a lot of fun. My husband works with me and we homeschool our kids and it's just a whole big, fun, busy, wild uh, life. <laughs> so you and your husband, like this is your husband's full-time thing too. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Really cool. Now, yes. do you guys have other people that work with you? We do. We have about five employees okay. who manage various aspects of the business or the ministry. Um, we Josh is our operations manager, handles all of our shipping and logistics, and then we have a creative director and then people who manage social media and things like that. 
Okay, cool. Well, that's that's more than I was thinking because I was going, how does she do all this? <laughs> so that makes a lot more sense. Um, can you tell me about the genesis of Every Woman a Theologian? I love that line. And um, I'm just curious where it came from and how long has, have it, has it been around? So originally everything was just in my name um, and in my social media channels still are, but as an entity, every woman, a theologian, I believe thinking back a couple years, I think it's been three years that it's been in um, existence. But before that, my ministry just operated under my name and did the, the same thing. We really talk about, and I say we, because Josh has always helped me with some of this, but I wrote about apologetics. How do we know what we believe? Where do we find it in scripture? How do we walk this out? Um, you know, what does that look like? So um, even before it was every woman, a theologian, and that name became our brand, if you will. I don't really love that term, but <laughs> it is what it is. Um, that was the heart is every woman can study the Bible for herself. She can understand these truths for herself, whether or not she ever goes to seminary. And mm -hmm. so we want to encourage that. And so eventually it became the name of the company itself. And when did you know that that's what you wanted to do? Um, I think I'm seeing a little bit more of it now, um, more sort of, I guess, serious type of Bible study stuff out there. Um, but when did you know that that was your passion and what made you think there was a, a need for it? I went to school for religion at a Christian university, which is basically a, a Bible degree. Um, and I think it was during that time that I realized so much of this that I'm learning in these classes would be helpful to any Christian to know. And yet I'm over here paying thousands of dollars to take these classes and this kind of information should be accessible to anyone. And I don't think that means that, you know, a Bible degree should be free to everyone. I think that just means that we should take that information and put it in an accessible and affordable format. And so that was years ago, you know, I was in college 10 years ago. So it wasn't like overnight, I started every woman, a theologian, but I think the seed was planted then. And there are tons of ministries that do just that they create resources, they they make seminary level information available, you can buy books on Amazon, and you know, the textbooks you'd use in a class. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I do think there's an element of there's the information and then there's making that information applicable to the average daily life. Mm -hmm. That's where the disconnect often is. And so that's what, what we try to do here. Okay. And um, I guess, uh, like, how did you sort of decide on, you know, how you were going to chart that path? Like what topics you were going to cover and how you were going to begin with courses or books and all that kind of stuff? Well, that is an ongoing journey. Um, and, and I think that's the only way that it can be when you're working out, you know, a ministry or business or sharing information in any vein. It's not going to be linear. And it wasn't. I started out writing about sexuality because that was a part of my own journey. And so I was very niche in Christianity in talking about sexuality mm. and sexual addiction for women. Mm. So I established myself as an authority in that arena. And then as time went on, 
realized that in order to talk about that topic, we kind of had to look at the big picture of where the Christian sexual ethic even comes from, which has to do with theology and has to do with the Bible itself. And so over time, what I was doing morphed into this broader um, beast almost that has multiple arenas. So from that point, when we started expanding into talking about theology, I realized, okay, we can provide this in the form of courses. We can provide free stuff on the podcast and on social media. And then we can also do paid resources like eBooks and print Mm -hmm. books and things like that. So it took time. It was definitely not a, I planned it all out 10 years ago and it happened exactly the way I planned. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of like when you're doing anything online, the the possibilities are endless and you, it's very overwhelming because you're like, well, I need to do this and I need to do that. And you just realize like you can, you can just only take one step at a time and then eventually you get there and you look back and think, wow, I, you know, I don't know how I did it, but um, now you said, I, I love how the seed was planted in your heart in college about making things accessible because um, for me, I think sort of how I found you actually was uh, a couple years ago, I started getting, I don't know where, I don't know where it came from, but I just started getting really interested in apologetics mm-hmm. and I've been a Christian my whole life and had a strong faith, but I recognized when I started reading some of these books, I thought, oh my gosh, there's so much that I don't know. There's so much that I the person that people would look at and say, oh yeah, she's like, you know, the Christian girl or whatever uh, in my life. Um, I'm like, well, if I don't know some of this stuff, oh my gosh, like how many people don't know some of this stuff? And so I just started to dig into it and following more people that were focused on theology um, and become sort of fascinated by it. So I think it's so important. And you talk on your, or on your website, you say you teach women to discern truth know what you believe and live your faith boldly in a post-Christian world. Um, What does post-Christian world mean to you? So there was a time, even 50, 60, 70 years ago, where the Judeo-Christian ethic really was pervasive in at least American society. Um, And even back then, you would have seen it more in European society as well. Since then, and since the the rise of a more humanistic approach to philosophy, spirituality, the Christian ethic no longer is what dictates um, the cultural spirit of the age. It's not the lens through which people generally look at the world and, and rather people oppose the Christian ethic. They see Christianity as either an enemy or um, at least something distasteful or archaic. And so we are, we are after, um, after Christendom, you know, post-Christian in terms of what the world thinks of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so that changes how we have to operate because for quite some time, I think in, in America, at least, it was pretty comfortable and, and accepted to be a Christian and we still by no means are persecuted, but I do think we're moving that direction. And so we have to be able to explain what we believe, why we believe it more than ever before, because just saying I'm a Christian isn't going to be like, Oh, okay. Anymore. Now, a lot of times it's going to be like, what you, you know, why would you, 
why would you do that? Or even how, you know, a lot of times people have a lot of baggage associated with, mm-hmm. with Christians and church in the past. And so that's why we need to be aware of what we believe and, and where apologetics come into play. Yeah. And, and similarly, I think sometimes even now it's kind of like, well, I'm a Christian, but, but I'm not that kind of Christian or, you know, there's this, these factions within Christianity. Now there's progressive Christianity, conservative and, and, and even other, you know, forms within those. Um, and so that's kind of sad in a way when you think about it and, um, hold on, I just lost my question. It was in my brain and I lost it, but I'm going to find it. <laughs> oh, discernment. That's where I was going. Um, so discernment is really important. Um, and, and I think now harder than ever, because obviously the internet, nothing, nothing new in our lives, but, but somewhat new in society and everything is out there now. So it's, it's no longer we're hearing, you know, things from a couple of places. We can see the latest ex-Christian or deconstructor or whatever, on YouTube, explaining things um, in our faces at all times. And so people, I think, are a little overwhelmed. They get confused. Um, And so what do you, what is your, I guess, best advice for staying um, on a path of discernment amid all of that? Well, the, the best advice I can give on this first is if someone's a Christian trying to discern in culture, you first got to think about why are you a Christian? why in the first place, if you don't know why, if it's like, well, I just grew up in a Christian home. My parents were Christians. I grew up in church or I said a prayer once. If, if you don't know why it will be very difficult to be a Christian in today's culture, it will, it, it, you have to know why you say you follow Jesus and you have to really determine if you're following him at all. I think there are people who have deceived themselves and think they can ride on the back of their parents' faith or um, because they go to a church that means that they actually follow Jesus. And we have to be honest and sit with ourselves and say, why am I a Christian? And that's a starting point for discernment because discerning truth as a believer all points back to your relationship with truth. And that's your relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, this is a pointless conversation. I know that's maybe a little bit of a harsh way to say it, but um, we have to start and end with the relationship with Christ from that loving relationship with Christ, knowing him, walking with him daily, then that impacts what we watch and what we do and how we talk and how we work and all of that. And, and, and then in turn, we can discern through those different areas through the lens of that relationship with Jesus and the Bible, what, where we go wrong. And you mentioned like, there's the progressive side, the conservative side in, in Christianity, where we go wrong is when we try to make decisions without relationship with Jesus. So that can happen regardless of where on the spectrum you land, like you can be a very conservative seeming person and have no relationship with Jesus. And you're just making decisions and discerning things out of pure willpower and your own ideas of what is right. And the same can happen on a progressive kind of, you know, approach. So we have to begin with what does my daily life in Christ look like? And then what does scripture say? Because you can't separate those two. You, you can't. Um, you either end up with legalism or you end up with liberalism. And so we want to stay in the core of that, which is loving relationship with Jesus and then dedication to his truth. And he is the one who actually helps us discern 
that truth in culture and understand. Secondly, the second thing would be understanding the core doctrines of Christianity. So you know when to give grace for something and when to say, oh man, you know what? That is definitely not in line with my values. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's an amazing answer. That was so good. Um, When it comes to your own uh, personal journey, when you're dealing with a tough theological issue or maybe something in culture has happened and it's like, you're not quite sure where to go on that. What is sort of some of the things that you do to find your own discernment? Well, one of the things I'll do, first of all, is I will look at the history of the issue, especially the history of that issue in context of Christianity or alongside the history of the church. What has the church historically done or how has it historically approached this issue? Because when you look at 2000 years of church history and how scholars interpreted the Bible with that issue in mind, that gives you an idea when you look at all of them together of what consensus was arrived at consistently across those years. So say you're talking about the sanctity of life and that can apply to abortion. It can apply to racism. It can apply to a lot of different things. You're talking about sanctity of life. What did the church over you know these past centuries think about that? How did they interpret that? And then once I know that, I can then move over to the present day issue and apply those principles. Now that's a historical perspective. Also, I would look at scripture and see what does scripture say about this? What was the context for what was said about this? What did Jesus say about this? And together between church history and scripture together, I would get a good idea of what the ethic is on that issue. And then my last question would be, is this a core issue for Christianity? Does this mm-hmm. does holding to this idea or following this, you know, issue taking this stance, does that violate any of the core um, ethical values of Christianity? Do you ever look to um, people that you sort of look to as thought leaders to see what they're saying? Or is it always a personal thing for you? I look at thought leaders last. That's good. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Because because I think that while I might very much respect someone who's a thought leader, they're still just a thought leader. And I mean, I guess you could say that reading historical perspectives is just looking at ancient thought leaders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you start, I would start with scripture and prayer, and then I would look at the historical scholarly um, basis, and then I would look at modern thought leaders. And I think it depends who you're looking at. But, you know, I, I don't go to Instagrammers for my spiritual um, direction. I might take a look at some of the resources they suggest, but their thoughts are are interesting, but they guide me to um, books and journal articles and historical um, issues that I then study as opposed to saying, oh, this person said this and therefore, you know, I think that's probably true. I tend to be a bit of a skeptic and I actually encourage my people to do the same thing of me and others. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, asking a lot of questions and weighing and doing your own um, seeking within scripture. I think that's vital. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So one of my favorite things that you have had in your shop recently, and that I think you have had in the past is the raising tiny disciples um, stuff. I just love that because my kids are three and five. And so, so so you know, those are yours too, right? Um, And so they're right at that age where they're just starting to really comprehend, especially my five-year-old. 
And so I think that's probably what got me into this apologetic stuff because I started to get questions from him that were like, you know, how toddlers ask philosophical deep questions. And you're like, I don't, I have no idea. So I think when he started asking me questions is when I started digging. And, you know, you often hear people say things like they don't want to indoctrinate their kids or, you know, people say they want to give their kids the choice, um, you know, when it comes to religion. And one of the things that I have sort of made my mantra recently is somebody's going to indoctrinate your kids. Why don't you let it be you? <laughs> right? <laughs> Makes sense. Um, because that word can be sort of taken in the wrong way, I think. But but anyway, all that to ask you, um, what opportunities do we have with our kids, even when they're very young? I mean, even as small as three and four years old. We have so many opportunities when they're really little to begin laying a foundation for a biblical worldview. And the thing is, when it comes to indoctrination, like you said, the facts are someone is indoctrinating your kids. But even if you didn't give them a biblical worldview, you said, I'm just going to open this up to whatever, you're still indoctrinating them with a worldview. You're saying there is no truth and I'm not going to give you any direction and that's the truth you're giving them. You're giving them you're giving them an atheistic worldview. So there is no unbiased worldview when you're discipling kids and everyone is discipling their kids. It just depends what direction they're discipling them. Right. So when you're discipling them into a biblical worldview and they're really, really little, all you're doing is laying a really basic foundation. They'll ask pretty existential questions sometimes, but for the most part, you're sticking to the basics. And what we like to do is stick to kind of the covenantal um, way of approaching it, which is looking at the six major movements in in the Bible, which are the covenant. So you look at Adam, you're looking at Noah, you're looking at Abraham, David, um, the new covenant. You're looking at these throughout scripture. And in those big picture truths, we have something that we can teach our kids. And what we're really trying to get at that point is um, the creation narrative. And basically, whether that's literalistic or not, you're really just giving them the idea that God is sovereign. He has He has a story that we're a part of, and here's how it's playing out. And is in terms of like sharing that with your kids, we can do that at mealtimes when everybody everybody's got to eat, right? The one of the few times we sit down meal times. You can do it right when they wake up. You could do it at bedtime. You can do it in the car. And it doesn't have to be this hour long thing. It can be five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You're just creating a space where their questions can be answered and that foundation can be laid. And then once they get older and they're 10, 12, 15, that's when you start to explore more of the why, more of the alternatives the, the ways that people diverge from a biblical worldview, why they believe what they believe. At that point, they have enough of a foundation that you can explore those things. Yeah. One of the most helpful things for me recently, like I read um, Mama Bear Apologetics was one of the first ones I read and just um, recognizing that um, because even though it didn't really sway my faith not to know those foundational things, like that's, I mean, lucky for me, right? Mm -hmm. um, that that when there's so many ideas that people bring up later in life that have answers, like we have a lot of answers in Christianity, but most people just don't realize that we do. And mm -hmm. I didn't realize that. And so for me, yeah, building those foundations and presenting those scenarios and those answers and saying like, well, yeah, I mean, 
yeah, that's what they said. But like, here's the biblical like answer to that. Um, it just makes me feel so much better about, you know, what, how I'm bringing these kids up. Yeah. So, it, and also I saw that you were talking to Amy Gannett tonight and I, uh, um, I had her on the podcast recently and I, uh, uh, use her tiny theologians cards as well. Nice. Yes. So I, love I love those. those. Yeah. Have my son pick a card. He loves picking the cards. So that's like, that's the big thing. Yes. Um, so I wanted to ask you, I mean, I know that you work with so many women, what are some of the most common, I guess, pain points or questions that you get? Well, because what what we do is basically teach critical thinking. Um, we teach theology, but we don't teach it in a systematic way. We teach it in a critical thinking way. How does it intersect with culture? Um, a lot of the questions we get have to do with the present cultural issue. What's the latest thing in the news or the latest holiday that's coming up? How do we think about Halloween? How do we think about Easter? Is Easter pagan? You know, we'll get questions like like that. Like, what's the historical, um, you know, precedent for this and how do we think about it today that's that's a lot of the kind of thing we deal with and so we address as a as an organization i have people who help me check what i write and things like that um we address a lot of questions about church structure women in ministry spiritual gifts how to discern worship music um like i said holidays how to observe Sabbath, things that are in scripture, but the details are not in scripture. So the question is, well, how do I walk this out? You know, if Sabbath is one of the 10 commandments, what does that look like on a daily basis? And so we will provide resources. I'll write blog posts and podcast episodes to kind of point people directions to find the resources they need to arrive at a conclusion. Okay. Yeah. Really helpful. I noticed on your newsletter and stuff, you just do a great job of like kind of previewing what's coming up and just really helpful, like everyday resources that people can really use. So I think you do such a great job on that. Um, when it comes to, I kind of touched on this earlier in terms of women being hungry for this more serious theological study. Um, I do feel like that's, sort of been trending upwards lately. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like it's related to the culture right now. Mm -hmm. um, we are entrenched in this stuff, like in a way that we never have been um, mm -hmm. and feeling the pressure all around. So um, do you assess it that way? And, and how are you kind of viewing that landscape? Oh, they're connected for sure. And even more progressive circles on, you know, in the deconstructionist movement, I would say the extreme deconstructionist mm -hmm. movement, the almost, almost anti-Christian, anti-church movement um, are seeing it this way and, and see it as, you know, perhaps in a less positive light, but as culture changes, um, the church changes to address it. That's been consistent over the course of history that as certain things arose in culture, the church had to adjust its response and create resources and guidance for that season. And so, I mean, I think about people like William Tyndale, who translated the Bible in a time when the Bible, it was against the law to, to translate the Bible into the language of the people. Um, and he was killed for it. But he knew that there was 
a need in that season and he rose to the demand um, of that season. And so there's a cost involved, but definitely as culture changes, um, the Holy Spirit through the church sees those changes and I believe inspires individuals to um, create the resources needed to get the gospel out there. Mm-hmm. That's great. So um, this word deconstruction, of course, very like uh, volatile. Um, and, and it can mean different things. Like you're saying, mm-hmm. it's like there's the extreme and then there's people who that's not what they mean at all. And so um, I guess, what do you make of the deconstructionist movement and, and what, what thoughts do you have on what's been happening with it? I think it's the natural outflow of extreme fundamentalism and purity culture. And I think in that sense, it's a good thing. Um, I think they bring up a lot of of good points, things that need to be addressed and and really purified from the church. Um, and again, it's on a spectrum. So people who use deconstruction to say, I am dismantling um, unbiblical and toxic ideas that were added on to Christianity, that's, I mean, that can be very good. That can be essential to growth in faith. But deconstruction as a word can also mean, you know, I'm walking away from Christ and the church completely. Um, And so really when someone uses it, you have to define it. And as a philosophical framework, deconstruction um, is anti-Christian. If you go back to um, Jacques Derrera and and all of his work in deconstruction, that was the goal. The goal was to be anti-family, anti-Christian. And so by definition, deconstruction would, would be against the church, but I don't think a lot of people use the term that way. I think they just mean I'm breaking down what I believe and piecing it back together. And the issue is that there are people in the deconstruction movement who don't want it pieced back together. They want you to walk away completely. And so that's where as an apologetics ministry, um, I encourage asking questions. I encourage breaking things down. I encourage questioning what you grew up with and questioning what you believe because that's important. But then ask yourself, am I really questioning what I believe um, or am I just living in a constant state of questioning? Because certainty is not the enemy. Gracelessness is. And so you can be certain of something while also being gracious towards people and loving towards people. And that's the example we have in Jesus. Yeah, that I could talk more about this, but we're not going to have time. So I want to ask you this question, which is about your good church stories thing that you did. So when I saw that you were doing that, you were collecting, you know, we hear so many um, negative stories about church from people and those do get, you know, kind of broadly promoted. Um, but like, like me, I'm sure you have a lot of good church stories and know lots of people that have them and there's so much good about the church. And so what inspired you to do that? And, um, just kind of what kind of response did you get? Yeah. So good church stories is literally just a compilation from my reader base of their stories of how the church Christians have blessed and encouraged and uplifted them. And the goal of it is not to ignore real issues of abuse or um, sin issues in the church, but to bring alongside those issues, the truth of what many Christians are doing that's good. I used to be a journalism major before I was a religion major. And part of good journalism is looking at all aspects of the story, not just the part you want to see. Mm -hmm. And so while we may 
want to focus on the negative and negative travels faster than positive that we also know based on media, we have to look at the whole picture. We have to look at all the stories, not just the negative stories. And we can't paint a picture of the Christian church based on only one side. You have to look at the holistic picture and also know that when abuse is confronted and purified, that's a good church story. When a church Mm -hmm. repents and changes, that's a good church story. Um, When a church rallies around the people who, who, who need it, that's a good church story. And so the entire little book, it's going to be free. The E version is going to be free. Um, is just a compilation of individual stories of what the church did for people who were in need, people who were struggling, people who um, were suffering. Um, and I think that for people who have experienced church hurt, it will give them hope that it's possible to find a church body that does what Jesus wanted it to do. Yeah, that that's so good. And that's why I was drawn to it. It's it's a huge passion of mine to share that mes- message as well. Um, what would you say? I mean, sometimes I think, you know, we hear the 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 terms and the phrases of, you know, I, I love Jesus, but I, I don't need church or um, I uh, don't need to go to church to have a relationship with God. And, and what would be your response to that? Jesus loves the church. He's the head of the church. He established the church. And anyone who follows Christ is in the church. And so when we say, I love Jesus, I don't like the church, what we're saying is, I want Jesus to be okay with me not being like Jesus. Mm. And that's not something he's going to be okay with. Like we can't say, I want Jesus, but I don't want any of Jesus' priorities. I don't want anything that Jesus affirms or loves. Um, We would very much dislike that in an in a person, much less in a perfect person, which is Jesus Christ. And so from a logical, historical, theological perspective, it's not a statement that we can say if we want to call ourselves a follower of Jesus. But it's possible to love Jesus and have been hurt by the church or to have experienced pain in the church. And so that has to be processed through and healed from, and it shouldn't be diminished. At the same time, one church does not re- represent all churches. It doesn't. And I've been in many, many churches over the course of my life. I did not grow up in one denomination. I've been in many denominations over the course of many different states. And so I have experienced and walked through this, including church splits. And what I just encourage is that there is a church body there that will support you and be with you, that one that you can serve in and use your experience with church hurt to change church culture instead of running Mm. away from it. Yes. Becoming a gift to the church body and training people to participate in church in a healthy way instead of saying, I'm done and I'm not doing this anymore. Um, I think one of the problems too is a lack of um, understanding of denominational structure We think, you know, we've got to be in only this one denomination or this one denomination only represents the whole church. And that's simply not true. And so the more we create an interdenominational understanding and encourage people, I think, to try churches outside of their comfort zone, they're actually going to see that there's a wide range of believers that they could do life with. And it could be a very positive thing. Yes, that's 
you are speaking my language <laughs> for sure. Um, okay, just two more questions. Um, sort of on a more personal level, um, obviously you're very busy as we all are, but you've got three kids, you have a business, um, you're doing ministry. How do you keep yourself kind of healthy in that mental space and keep, I mean, for lack of a better word, balanced? I stay off social media as much as I can. Um, social media is, I've found the the single um, biggest problem when it mm. comes to me trying to pursue what God wants me to pursue for myself, for my family. Um, and so taking regular breaks, I'm off of um, social media for a month this month of July when we're recording this. And I take month-long sabbaticals two, three, four times a year. So wow. that is very essential for me to be able to do to do this and to do it well. I would say um, accountability is big. I think anyone who's in ministry, especially if you're not attached to a local church or not like paid by a local church, which I am not, um, you need to be attached to a local church and have that accountability um, to support you. Um, my husband works with me. So we're with each other all the time. That wasn't always the case. I was for many years, a stay at home mom that ran this on the side working during nap times. So, um, until a year ago. And so that being the case, I do make a lot of time for, I guess what people call self care. Um, <laughs> people don't like that word sometimes, yeah, but that's whatever what you want it to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, I go for walks to be alone. We live near Lake Michigan. So I go to the beach by myself and my husband will sometimes watch the kids or I'll just go in the evening where it's quiet just to get away and have space to hear from the Lord, what he wants me to prioritize, to plan for the week on um, my plan. We sit down, we plan for the week to try to make sure we're getting the family time we need. The business gets the time it needs. The farm, we have a small farm, um, gets the time it needs. Um, just to figure out like, what's the Lord want us to prioritize? How can we keep the main thing, the main thing, um, integrating Sabbath into our lifestyle so that we aren't pouring out from emptiness? Mm-hmm. That's good. Wow. That's um, to take a take months. That's or a month is a, is a long time that I think a lot of people couldn't even fathom at first. <laughs> but I, I mean, once you do it, you probably feel like, wow, like that was so necessary and life giving. Yes. yes. And I, I just come from the perspective that if God is calling you to do something, he doesn't need you to hustle harder in order to fulfill it because he is a God of rest. And so, you know, people often would say, well, taking a month off is business suicide. Well, not with, not with my God. And so mm -hmm. if it means that my family suffers because of what I'm doing online, then that means what's happening online needs to stop and that God will sustain the growth necessary to continue the business and provide for our family, provide for our employees. Um, it's just something that I firmly believe. Um, and it's a big trust step for me, but it's necessary in order to do this. And so he, he does it. He comes through. That's awesome. Okay. I can't let you go without asking for some book recommendations. I'm guessing you're a reader. So do you have anything you can recommend? Oh my goodness. What do you want it on? That's the question. I mean, any, like, give us a couple, <laughs> at least okay. two. Okay. Well, let's do this. I'll give you a fiction. I'll give you a, a theology and I'll give you a memoir because yes, I am a reader and oh, I, I love that. Love to read. So 
fiction, I just finished Time After Time. I don't remember the name of the author, but it is a novel set in Grand Central Station in New York City. Um, It's a little weird. And if you don't like time travel slash ghosts, it might be, you might be like, not a fan. (laughs) Um, But it's historical. It's set in the 1930s and 40s. I loved it and couldn't put it down. Um, It's a secular novel. I, I loved it. It was it was great in my opinion. Um, theology, there's many, many, many I could recommend, but I really love um, If God, Why Evil by Norman Geisler. Mm-hmm. If you've ever had wondered why is there evil in the world? Did God cause it? How do I explain it? That's a great book to read, If God, okay. Why Evil. Good to know. And for memoir, which is actually my favorite genre, The Dirty Life which Hmm. is a book about a journalist who becomes a sustainable farmer and her first year starting a sustainable farm. Super, super cute and fun to read. I loved it. Um, I would highly recommend it. All right. Well, Felicia, thank you so much. I got so much out of this conversation and I I loved it. And um, I think I might sign up for your theology basics course because I think I need some more basics. (laughs) So um, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan Discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.